All right, so let's get into the message here. Uh, we are, uh, I'm taking an old message from the Search the Scripture series. As always, I've tweaked it and changed it and updated it in various ways. Uh, this, in, if you're familiar with that series, that series is 39 parts technically, but many parts have part A, B, C, all the way to E in some cases. So there's about 150 parts of that series. Um, I first did this series uh, before we started this church when I was teaching Sunday school for a, a church on North Smithville Road called uh, Bethel Christian Assembly. And uh, the, uh, just the part on word pictures of Jesus in the scriptures was three messages because we covered uh, about 55 of the 70 or so most prominent word pictures of Jesus in the scriptures. Uh, and I'm thinking about writing a little book on that. So as of uh, after today, I'm, act, I'm hoping not to actually be teaching on Sundays, partly to work on raising up the new uh, leadership that's emerging in our church, uh, and partly to uh, give more time to writing. And I'm actually hoping to regularly and often write a bulletin insert. Um, and, you know, who knows, maybe if we get good at it, someday we'll start a blog or something. We'll see. Um, so let's start with this, setting annual Bible study goals. We're about to start a new year, and I personally think that uh, the, the first uh, week of a new quarter of a year, uh, so that would be 1st of January, April, July, and October, uh, 1st of October, those are uh, where the new quarters of a year start. A lot of business things are done by quarters. And those are a good place to jump in with a new goal in your life. So um, you might recall that we have the first teaching in this uh, uh, study. Shoot, we should not have Christiana doing Sunday school when I'm sharing because I need to ask her some questions about what we discussed. Uh, we were supposed to send an email of this teaching to everybody. Did that get done? The Bible on the importance of Bible study? Okay. So that's a teaching that I, if you haven't been through, oh, 20 or 30 times, you really should go through it 20 or 30 times as part of your first year or so in Grace Christian Fellowship. Uh, because what, we're, what God has called us to is to be a people of the book. If you study history and you study uh, cultures and things like that, often you will hear of the people of Judeo-Christian descent, the, the Jews, the Hebrews, uh, the, the Christians, and so forth, described as people of the book. We are a people who believes that there is one God. And therefore, uh, you know, Nathan spoke about authority that, uh, today at 930, and authority can be used in a number of ways. Uh, and, and the truth is, he was speaking about delegated authority, which is involved with a subject called covenant hierarchy. But authority is broader than that. Ultimately, every person on the planet, in their heart and mind, has a place where they put uh, the reference point or, uh, for all truth and understanding. So in humanistic culture, man's reason, and it very quickly becomes 
each individual person's private little religion, which is what the serpent was advocating in Genesis 3, if you, if you uh, read that carefully, when he says to Eve, you shall be as God yourself, and the Hebrew means determining for yourself good and evil. And ultimately, in our culture, we're very big on the, you know, uh, taking surveys. And, so, and somehow, like, if the majority of people think something's true, then maybe there's some credibility or truth to that. Well, of course, that's not true itself. Um, I, one of my philosophy professors in college had a big poster on his wall that was not in really good taste, to be honest. Uh, it had a um, picture of uh, horse manure with uh, a lot of flies. And the caption said, eat something uh, that you're not supposed to say if you're an evangelical Christian or whatever. Uh, it starts with an S, ends with a T, and it's as high in the middle. But, uh, and, it, it's, and it says uh, 10,000 flies couldn't be wrong. You know, uh, you know that, and that's kind of, uh, one of the fallacies if you study what's called logic and logical thinking is uh, the, the appeal to the majority. Um, you know, we, we've had a majority of people, uh, you know, in, in 1850, there was a famous Supreme Court case in America where the majority of the enlightened Supreme Court gods, uh, justices, excuse me, uh, declared that uh, African-American-descended uh, people were three-fifths of a person legally. Now, guess what? You can do all the mumbo-jumbo twisting and thinking and craziness you want. That will never be true. Amen. Although, this, you know, it doesn't matter that the majority of, of, of supposedly enlightened, godlike pontificates uh, declared it to be so, it has nothing to do with reality. And so, one of the things we need to understand is that we as Christians believe there is a triune God who, is, uh, who reveals himself and who is three people, three persons in one being, one God. That's the first and great mystery of the Christian life. And that, that um, there is no such thing as what humanists are after called objective truth. Objective truth, the very idea, uh, postulates that there's a non-personal universe somewhere that, uh, that no intelligent being has anything to say about. But biblical truth is subjective it's from the God himself, and his opinion is the only opinion that matters. What he says is truth, and we as Christians believe that he has given us his word uh, throughout history in two ways. The second and most recent way, in some ways, although uh, the first way proceeds and, and follows the, this way, but one of the ways God has given us his word, Hebrews 1 tells us, in these last days he has revealed himself, he has spoken a true word through his son, who is the exact representation of his nature. You know, as the mouth speaks out of the abundance that fills the heart, one of the things I always find wherever 
their strife and selfish ambition and difficulty in family or other kinds of relationships, uh, there will always be some sort of passive-aggressive communication. So people will say, I'm just kidding. But the mouth speaks out of the abundance that fills the heart, and what needs to be determined is, is, uh, was the person really just kidding, or are they saying something that's really in their heart? Uh, so, uh, that now, that doesn't mean that there isn't sometimes just kidding with no, no animosity or anything behind it, but we need to take seriously that sometimes there is false motivations behind it. So, if you want to know God, there's only one way to know God. Know what he has said in his inscripturated word, the scriptures. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 is the basis of a very foundational doctrine in the Christian life called the plenary inspiration of scripture. That means all, and if you do a deep word study on the word all, which is pan in the Greek, like pan American Airlines, if you do a deep study of the word pan, you'll find that all means all. In all scripture, each and every scripture, all the scriptures, all the scriptures uh, interpreted in relationship to the other scriptures, that is the revealed will of God. And everything that we need to, to live the life God's called us to live is in that word. Now, I'm being most selfish here, as I have learned to be more so in my older age, in that if I can convince you to get a more serious relationship to the Scripture, you'll need much less pastoral counsel. <laughs> and uh, I, I can enjoy my you know, Ohio State football games or whatever with uh, less interruptions. <laughs> so... Uh, so I have ulterior motives in why I want you to know the Bible. Uh, so, uh, Psalm 119, verse 160 is not on your page either. Uh, no fair quote in scriptures that aren't on your page. Uh, it says this. Um, I lost my train. Oh, oh, the sum of thy word is truth. And anyone knows, I, you know, I first started enjoying sums because I f liked football when I was a little kid. And uh, I like to mess around with, the, you know, in football, you can, uh, there are two points is a safety. There's a one point and two point after, con uh, after a touchdown uh, conversion type thing. Uh, there's field goals that are three points. And interestingly, that... Uh, it's so much easier to score a field goal that two field goals, because of the extra point situation, does, does not equal a touchdown. It takes three field goals to overcome a touchdown. That's as it should be. But playing with all kinds of numbers was always a very important thing for me. I, my favorite teacher of all time... Uh, in fifth and sixth grade, we spent one day a week where he would just, uh, we weren't allowed to have paper in our desk, and he would just uh, stand there and go, 23 plus 7, divide by 2, times 7, minus 12. And then whoever got the answer first got extra credit points. And we became very good at multiplying even two and three digit numbers in our head. Um, so, uh, 
we have a teaching in this church called, called the Bible and the Importance of Bible Study, which is the first teaching in this series. I've already alluded to it, but it's designed to be a tool that you don't just use once. It's something you use to grow a hunger for God's word. Now, I know something, uh, I should stand over here so the podium doesn't block my credentials. I know something about eating. I know a lot about being hungry and eating the right amount and more, and more than the right amount. <laughs> uh, I'm somewhat of an expert on eating a lot of kinds of food. But, uh, you know, I know which cultures of the world I like their food and which cultures of the world I don't like their food and so forth. So, um, and what's the proper quantities and what you should eat if you don't want to be as fat as me. And let me tell you, it's not three pounds of bacon in two weeks. But, uh, <laughs> so, um, just one pound of bacon. But, uh, no, I'm just kidding. So, uh, Scripture presents itself as our sustenance. In the Bible on the importance of Bible study, uh, what we decided is the best place to start in our thinking about the importance of the Bible is to start with what does the Bible say about the importance of the Bible? Doesn't that seem reasonable? And so uh, that teaching has about 70 scriptures that are cut and pasted for you so you don't even have to turn to them. Uh, in most cases, they're from the New American Standard Bible, which tends to be one of the more superior uh, English translations, although there's so many good translations um, on the market. But in terms of the Bible and the importance of Bible study, what I've done is I've taken those scriptures and divided them by 14 themes. So the first theme is that you'll find Jesus in your Bible. As a Christian, have any of you ever had a time, especially like maybe in, when you're worshiping and, or when you're reading your Bible alone or praying alone and you say, Lord Jesus, I just want to know you. I just want to know you better. If you're not prioritizing the scripture, you're, you're lying to yourself. Maybe you're attempting to lie to God. That, believe it or not, has been done before. So the truth is... Um, you know, we have all these wonderful, nice engagement announcements. Congratulations, Stephen and Noel. And uh, no one has ever said to me, you know, I, uh, I occasionally do premarital counseling, marriage counseling, a lot, lot and so forth. And no one ever says to me, well, you know, one of my goals is, you know, Noel writes me text and emails. And so I save all of those in one nice place because someday I'm probably going to get around to reading them. It wouldn't take a genius marriage counselor to say, there's some problems right from the start here. <laughs> uh, and the, the truth of the matter is, the Bible is God's love letter to his people. It's based on covenant. The reason people get betrothed or engaged in biblical culture, that was as serious of a commitment as marriage itself. So uh, to ignore God's word is basically, uh, well, I, I was going to say it more crassly, but I'm try, 
trying to reform my ways. So I'll just say this, that uh, if you kind of think of love and hate as being uh, a continuum like measured by, say, a graph or a stick or something, love and indifference are further apart than love and hate. One of the things that you always see whenever you're uh, dealing with various marriage difficulties is one person is concerned about how indifferent the other person is to various priorities in the relationship. You know, your whatever is more important than, than, uh, than me. And as a Christian, we are called to many things. Um, Alyssa Ferguson and I were talking about plate spinning a little while ago. And I, I don't know if you've ever seen those comedy acts that are, they, I guess it's called plate spinning, where they get a plate on a stick and they get it twirling like this and then another one and another one. And eventually they have like 30 of them going. And the guy's running around trying to get this one a little more power and this one a little before any of them fall. The Christian life is very much like that. <laughs> so you'll hear me often talk about every day you need to have a spiritual discipline of encountering God, not just a uh, you know, a quiet time or, you know, 15 minutes, you know, you need to come into the very throne room of God's presence, be uh, filled with his spirit in such a way that it motivates you throughout the day and that you can hear his voice clearly and you have a clear sense of what he's saying. And so, I always say you've got to start by repositioning yourself according to grace daily. Uh, a very favorite scripture for me is 2 Corinthians 11.3 where Paul says, but I am afraid. No, he doesn't say it in past tense. I was afraid. And one of the reasons the New American Standard Bible is an excellent translation is it's more uh, picky about how it translates time, text, verbs, and so forth than any other English translations. So, uh, so when you're trying to see if, uh, like Jesus says, but when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, uh, when you're looking at time alerts like after or when or before or whatever, uh, the New American Standard is, is, is very superior. And, and verbs always have tenses. And the New American Standard is very picky about rendering the verb in the right tense. So, um, forgot what I was talking about with the tense. <laughs> uh, I, oh, Paul says, I am afraid. A very present concern needs to be, he says, I am afraid lest the serpent deceived you and led your mind astray from purity and simplicity of devotion to Christ. The Christian life isn't difficult, it's impossible. It can only be led, lived at all out of the resurrection person and pr presence of Jesus Christ via his Holy Spirit. That's why the uh, 10 days after the Ascension, Ascension Thursday, 10 days later is Pentecost Sunday. 
And Jesus spends his entire discourse in John's gospel of the version of the Last Supper, John 13, John 14, John 15, and John 16. John has already read the other three gospels when he writes his. And he's purposely emphasizing things about the deity of Christ that he wants to, to make sure that are emphasized that he feels need a little more clarity than, than you might get from a, from a shallow or casual reading of Matthew, Mark, or Luke. And so at the Last Supper, the three synoptic gospels, as they're called, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, because they see Jesus in a similar way, uh, they concentrate on the Last Supper, on, God, on Christ giving us the, the, the turning the Passover Supper into its true fulfillment, the Lord's Supper. The path, all, many things in the Old Testament are foreshadowings of Christ. Almost everything in the Old Testament is a foreshadowing of Christ. He then uh, tells us that one of the people that he prayerfully selected and was not wrong, named Judas Iscariot, was going to betray him. Yet he had chosen the, the him himself, and one was a devil or a demon. Devil is old-fashioned King James. Um, he then tells Peter uh, if you, that he was going to deny him three times, and he predicts that Peter will be restored and tells him that when he is restored, strengthen his brothers. John covers none of that. John starts with Jesus washing the disciples' feet with a towel because he's basically going to talk about all the great powers he's going to leave in the church when he goes to heaven. That's why when you have those thoughts, as everybody has in your Christian life and you're reading the Gospels and you go, wouldn't it be neat to have been alive when Jesus was alive and known his physical presence and heard you know, his voice so you could recognize his voice not just by knowing it in the spirit, but, you know, by the outward, whatever, audio quality and so forth. Uh, we all think that, of course. And there's nothing wrong with having that thought. But Jesus makes it clear, it's to your advantage that I go away. We are actually living in a much more exciting time and place to be a Christian. Because he left the Holy Spirit to do his, to continue his work. And he very intentionally does everything he does out of the person, power, and presence of the Holy Spirit in his incarnation as a model and pattern for us. And the reason it's an advantage is when he, in his incarnated body, during the years, uh, the 30 or 33 years that he was uh, physically incarnated on this planet, what God was doing through Christ was limited to where Christ could be physically present, which... Most of you know, no one is good at being in two places at once. But since the outpouring of the Holy Spirit through the body of Christ, Christ can be thousands of places at once. And he's every bit here because two or three are gathered in his name as he was uh, on the road to Emmaus with the two disciples or in the feeding of the 5,000, or whatever. The, you know, we have been brainwashed in low expectations of what to expect when we gather together in the name of the Lord by our natural-minded, anti-supernatural, post-enlightenment, skeptical culture. But the same Jesus that turned water into wine is here today. 
and by his spirit, he still speaks his word. So in John 8, 31 and 32, Jesus is having um, an encounter um, with, uh, with the Pharisees and scribes who are disbelieving in him. What's that? Right, right. So he is having this encounter with the Pharisees and scribes who are not believing in him. But, of course, in the audience, there were mixed in some people who were listening and believing his word. So he parenthetically, in a whole long uh, discourse that is blasting the religious Pharisees and so forth for their rejection of him and his word, he kind of steps aside and speaks a word of encouragement to those who are believing in his word. And that's what's happening here. So he says to those who are believing in his word, he says, if, notice I have that underlined. You know, in math, there's a concept that if you think about the logic, isn't really uh, necessary. It's just a thing that we do for emphasis. But, but there's a, even a symbol for if and only if. So that's really what if means. You know, if you love me, keep my commandments. If you, you know, I used to say to my sons, I will know that you're starting to grow up if and only if when I don't have to remind you that Wednesday is trash night. <laughs> and uh, anyone I think has leadership potential, the first thing, a job I always give them in the church is taking out the trash. That's the ultimate sign that I really believe in you. I've been a Christian uh, 46 years. Uh, I've been in about seven churches. Uh, I I have to go back and count, but one was always an outgrowth or plan of another. (laughs) But um, in most cases, uh, with one or two exceptions. But um, I have never been in a church that the first job I was given wasn't taking out the trash. Even in this church, when we started it, I was the guy that took out the trash and emptied the waste baskets the first couple of years. That's the best job to start with. People should be plotting to get that away from Sam Owante. <laughs> I'll trip him up. <laughs> I'll hide out on Wednesday nights, and when he comes, I'll tie and I'll empty the trash without him. But um, so, if and only if you continue in my word. Uh, then you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will, make, will set you free. Now, I put in your outline a few Greek words. I'm going to cover at least two. Pisteo, pisteo, or however you, I'm not very good at pronouncing Greek words, as you know. I don't, can barely speak English words. Uh, it, but we, we struggle with what faith is. But faith is ultimately just putting your trust I plop down on these pews regularly and often without thinking much about uh, anything. Usually I look enough to make sure I'm not going to sit on, you know, my coffee or something, Uh, (laughs) which I almost did today. But uh, because I trust that they were made by people whenever they were made, I don't have any idea, uh, that did it well, and the pew's going to hold me up. 
we trust all the time. One of my favorite little mental games to play in my head is when I'm out on the bike path and the train is coming, I pedal even as hard as I need to, whatever, to make sure I go under the bridge as the train is going on over it. And the reason I liken it is because I go, this is ultimately what faith is. I'm trusting that some engineers uh, more than 100 years ago got everything right about the tensile strength of the steel and et cetera, et cetera, the design and so forth. Now, like in all faith, faith is not an irrational leap like the worldly people think it is. My faith is based on some very real facts. For one thing, the train's been going over this five times a day for the last hundred years and it hasn't collapsed yet. Uh, yet, yet being the key word. But because uh, every once in a while there's a great news story about a bridge or whatever that collapsed in the middle of rush hour or whatever. But faith is really just trusting in, and you're going to build your life on something. Everyone, in the bread you eat, the, uh, the food you eat, it's, a, it's always an outgrowth of your real religion. I can tell you what you really believe about God's word by what you do. So, admit, uh, so when Jesus says, if you continue... Meno is the Greek word for continue. And this is an important thing to know. When you're reading the Bible, if you know how to use something like Blue Letter Bible or any other uh, resource that will give you the Greek, an interlinear Bible or something like this, anytime you see a Greek word that's translated more than three or four different ways in good English translations, good being that they either follow the literal equivalence philosophy of translating or in some cases the dynamic equivalence, not if they're a paraphrase or whatever, and not all dynamic equivalences are, you know, there's dynamic equivalences, I won't mention which ones, uh, that are pretty terrible, including the one that's the most popular translation in evangelical Christianity. It's, it's a very sketchy at best translation of God's word. It's the number one selling book of all time. Um, I guess you know which one I'm talking about now. But um, when you're reading in good English translations and you see more than three English words that it's translated by, it's a clue that the Greek word is too rich for any one English word that we have. And so when you read the word meno, it will be translated abide in. Uh, the NIV, which I blasted a few minutes ago, says hold on to. Uh, dwell in, some translations will say continue in. You'll see remain in, live in, and so forth. But it's a word that, it's a, it's a super, super important word. In John 15, when Jesus is talking about abiding in me, and he uses the, the dual word pictures of being the door and the vine. He keeps saying abide in me, which again, uh, if you're reading something like Revised Standard, it'll uh, be remain in, but continue and dwell in. He's saying continually, actively, often, always. Like this is what you do if you're a Christian. You know, if you're married, 
Stephen didn't propose to Noel that they would be married on Tuesdays, Thursdays, and every other Friday. <laughs> Noel was, wouldn't be saying yes to that sort of agreement. <laughs> She'd be like, let me exercise my power of veto. Um, so, um, remain in, meno is a very strong, strong word. And Jesus is saying, if you live a lifestyle where you are always studying, where you are always talking about, where you're always thinking about um, my word, then these things will follow. And it's, it's a logical formula, if and only if. If you don't do that, none of the rest follows. So he says, if you do that, then you're truly my disciple. That means if you do not do that, then you're a hypocrite, false disciple. You're fooling yourself. You don't believe it. There used to be a rock song like that. You're fooling yourself. You don't believe it. It's amazing to me. One of the things that has become a concern to me is that in Grace Christian Fellowship, we're trying to do something that by, that's impossible and at various times, we're doing better or worse by the grace of God. But um, we're trying to uh, put together about 100 different emphasis of what a biblical complete church looked like in the same group of people. And uh, if this group of people doubles in number, it'll be a little easier because we'll have more resources. But one of the emphasis we have in this church and have had that we've gotten away from, so it's like that plate thing again, one of the plates that we've let fall to the ground and crash is our knowledge of God's work. This was a church where I had to have my son-in-law, Jason, once defend me because I, no matter what I teach on Sundays, there's always a, a lot of criticism. And, uh, you know, the criticism gets back to me in a biblical way sometimes where people actually talk to me about it. A lot of times it gets back to me in a very non-biblical way where they talk to uh, you know, whoever they is, uh, whoever they can get that dainty morsel into, but uh, but there's always a lot of criticism. And one at one time there was a lot of criticism. Why does Greg always emphasize uh, that we should read God's word? And Jason said, when, he said, when we don't need to hear that anymore, he'll probably stop saying it. Well, I haven't emphasized it as much in the last few years, and, and, and recently there's been a number of events that have been, frankly, to the point of alarming about how little various people in our church know about all sorts of basic Bible topics, and how few people, we have a concept we call the foundational books, that we purposely chose books that if you have a fifth or sixth grade public school inner city education, you should be able to read it for the vocabulary level. And we've said uh, those should be read the first 12 months you come to Grace Christian Fellowship. And we found that less than 5% of the people in the church have actually made any attempt to do that. And so like Paul tells us to be of one mind, of one spirit, maintaining one purpose, unless there's some things that everyone buys into, you can't really have uh, fruitfulness in the kingdom of God. If we don't get a, a little higher involvement with scripture and, and with the foundational books and, and things like that, we're not going to accomplish anything God's called us to accomplish. 
So this is why I'm doing this teaching because we're about to start a new year and being a new year is a great time to make new goals. So I've kind of, I've kind of mismanaged my time. Uh, Nathan, maybe you could take charge of this. Let's see if there's a way we can't uh, just keep the kids in the basement a little longer. Uh, and so, because I want to get through some things. Roman numeral two, letter A in your outline is about goal setting. And I have purposely put some things in red today uh, so that you would emphasize them. Like the first thing in red is chapter one, the Bible and the importance of Bible study. Use that on a daily basis to grow your hunger. There's a, there's a whole thing at the beginning of, about how to grow a hunger. All hungers can be grown. That's why I started joking about fat and uh, being fat and all that. I have, I'm an expert at growing my hunger. <laughs> you know, uh, I remember once uh, fasting for two or three days before we went out for our anniversary so I could eat more at the, uh, the anniversary dinner. I mean, there are ways you can increase your hunger, believe me. You know, some people like working out just because after a workout, you you're have a much healthier appetite. <laughs> and uh, so, goal setting. There's an old saying that if you aim at nothing, you'll surely hit it. I can't imagine trying to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And again, he says, if you abide in my word, then you're a true disciple. If you don't, you're a liar. You're a false disciple. You're fooling yourself. And you'll know the truth. So if you don't abide in his word, you won't know the truth. You know, recently a few scriptural ideas came up and and we found out that uh, a lot of people in our church don't know much about certain basic ideas, even tithing. Uh, I, I learned to, to tithe the first uh, three months I was a Christian. I read the New Testament and some parts of the Old Testament, and I wasn't very serious about the Lord, so that's all the further I got in the first few months. But uh, I, I started tithing then because it was pretty clear in Scripture. <laughs> you, know, uh, you tithe to your local church. You give offerings to Christ, Christian causes beyond your local church that you believe that are extending the kingdom and doing a good job. So, goal setting is biblical. There are hundreds of verses I could use. Uh, I like Luke 13, 32, where Jesus declares one of his goals. He says, go tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. And on the third day, I reach my goal. I'm coming to Jerusalem to get you guys. And I'm going to actually conquer you by letting you kill me. Talk about an end-around strategy. Philippians 3.14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Is that something you could say about yourself? That that's actually something that motivates me on a daily basis. When I, act, when I examine what do I do and why do I do what I do, would that be a good description? I press on for the upward call, uh, you know, the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart. We have, there's a reason we teach. A good conscience and sincere faith. So the first thing about goal setting is choose the right goals. Make sure they're biblical. And I'm going to steal something that I learned from Tiffany Hager here. Uh, the spaghetti principle. One of the problems, you know, I, I had a wonderful opportunity the other night to stay up till 1 or 2 in the morning ministering to a young man who's got a lot of love for the Lord 
and a lot of confusion at the same time, as we often do in our first 10 or 12 years. And uh, one of the reasons there was so much confusion is because uh, we're thinking about 17 or 20 goals at a time. So, you know, when you eat spaghetti, uh, Teresa Mattis is the spaghetti expert in our church. Uh, <laughs> so you can talk to her after church. You take all these long noodles, cook them so that they're sort of formless, and you throw them in a plate together, and they're all tangled up. Right? And so the first thing you got to do is separate it all. And don't deal with multiple... You know, in one case, I remember dealing with someone who was, uh, tr you know, like frustrated about 10 or 12 different things trying to spin all these plates. Step back and reduce it to one thing of the purity and simplicity of being devoted to Christ, of getting grace-based, and examine if there's any kind of overriding emotional or spiritual problem that's interjecting itself into everything you'd think and do. Often that's the case with people with, that have had lousy fathers uh, and, and because uh, you can end up having various insecurities and fears of man and, and condemnations and, and heaping too much guilt and blame on yourself and so forth. And that ends up coloring everything you're thinking. So become aware of that and begin to work on it. Uh, in my life... Uh, God gave me very, very, very good deliverance from that uh, type of thing that really plagued me. I had a terrible relationship with my father, and although it was much better after I became a Christian. But God really gave me the breakthrough to be confident in his love for me, his grace, to not have things about fear of man and insecurities and identity issues interfering thing. And it only took 30 years. And what we do here at Grace Christian Fellowship through the discipleship and so forth is this, is we take advantage of something like that that took 30 years and we, we could get you there in three years if you be, learn how to get the right kind of counsel and study and different things. We have all kind of tools like sozos and deliverances and things that can help you with that. And that's what we have recommended foundational book list and personal discipleship. All of those are to help you. But if you have something like that, identify that and take that into account in your thinking on everything. And when you set goals, not if you set goals, not setting goals is to set the goal to just be confused and fail and misdirected and to be th focusing on 20 things at once. And when you are, you'll do nothing well. I always say limit the, simplify your goals and your lifestyle first and only add another plate that you're spinning when you got all the plates you, that you, that you, when you've reduced it to the minimum number of plates you can get spinning. Uh, focus on that a while and when by the grace of God you're doing that well, then consider adding another plate. Not until then. You know, like if you've not been in school for a while, don't go back to school and take two or three classes at once. Take one. If you're working a job and you're working your way through school and stuff. Because you're just setting yourself up for failure when you take on too many goals. So in goal setting, choose the right goal and separate out all the areas. 
These are my spiritual discipline goals. These are my diet, nutrition, and exercise goals. Now, you might include sleep with that because all the things that, that maintain or steward your physical health or whatever. These are my relationship goals with, uh, if you're single with my roommates or your spouse. or uh, These are my goals as a father, etc. Vocational, educational. You know, now, you really should break it down into the smallest number you can because for most people, goals act a lot like a hymn that if you let that one thing get away, everything starts to unravel. Most people, if you step back, and this is why discipleship can, can help you because you don't go to your discipler for answers. After you seek God for answers and you got some things written down, you go to your key brothers, your pastor, uh, maybe some of the guys you're most close with, and you see if they confirm that or want to tweak that or help you have an insight that you are missing. And I have a lot of people on our leadership team, like Daniel Williams just said, man, he's one of the guys who helps me tweak that kind of stuff. And he doesn't just, just go like, you're thinking all crazy. <laughs> you know, he's much more gracious than that. He said, well, you might, did you think about this or whatever? Everyone, I hope you get that. Choosing the right goals first and dividing the goals uh, using Tiffany's spaghetti principle. Two, make sure the goals are challenging but not unrealistic. If you uh, have struggled with your weight like I have or a few others, don't, uh, I, I, my goal is not to have the body of John Bradbury in a year. <laughs> I'm not going to get there. Nor is he going to get my knowledge of scripture or, church or theology or history in one year. But I have to decide how much God's called me to get, uh, look a little better and lose a little weight. And uh, I do have a goal for this coming year of losing 12 pounds and making, I have a, a certain weight that I stay at and I'm going to move that 10 pounds south. But I don't really care about being skinny, to be honest, uh, except for I did notice with watching the Christmas video that uh, videos really do make you about 10 or 15 pounds even bigger than you already are. What a shame. But... Uh, we need, Josiah, work on getting some cameras and stuff that make me, you know, might make me look thinner and, and, and maybe handsome. Maybe I could get some hair, get my hair back or whatever, but. <laughs> Believe me, you can have any job in the church you want if you can do that. <laughs> um, so make the goal challenging, but not unrealistic. Don't set yourself up for failure by making it too high. But you'll also fail if it doesn't take some creative imagination to think you might be able to get there. I almost had sports idolatry. Almost. <laughs> and I used to love to play full court basketball. And uh, I used to wonder if sometimes God was going to chastise me because I played full court with the guys in our church about four times a week. And, uh, and we were young and thin, and we 
basically won the church league by just running everyone else out of gas. So they basically didn't get up and down the court with us anymore because they just couldn't keep up. And so, hard to believe that I, and I had hair and everything. But uh, (laughs) uh, I loved basketball, right? So, you know, you've got to take all these kind of things into consideration, but I never had the goal that I was going to, like, play for a college team or have a career of it because it it was obvious by the time I was around 12.5 years old that I didn't have that kind of talent. Set your goals realistic. Make sure that you can, that uh, they're, they take some creativity to imagine achieving them. So the reason I brought up the basketball thing, I played the best and the teams I coached played the best when the other team was a little better than us and no one thought we could beat them. But deep down, I thought if we really focused, if we maintain mental discipline, because as Yogi Berra once taught us, uh, Sports are 90% half mental, but uh, <laughs> it's a Yogi Bearism. Baseball is 90% half mental. But uh, uh, if I thought, if I play my best game, if I stay in my highest intensity uh, it, for the entire game, we might be able to pull this off. We did. And I always played much better. And so, like, if I'm setting a goal to lift, lose weight or something, it's got to be something that I know this is going to take some distance, discipline, some efforts, some consistent, and I'm going to move other priorities around to do this. Does everybody got that? Properly estimate the cost of achieving this. I have their fallen tendencies are to underestimate costs. Success comes from proper estimate, estimation or overestimation. So here's the bottom line. This I I discovered even when I was only uh, pastoring for about five years. Everybody wants to have a goal that looks on a graph like this. Without video, you you know, it's it's two feet apart or whatever, so for someone who's not looking. And we want to estimate what the cost of attaining that somewhere that would actually take us to here. So we want to lose weight so I'm going to have a little bit less fudge on my hot fudge Sundays. That's probably not going to be enough. And so the first thing you got to do is realistically have a plan for what it would take to get that goal. If you're going to have Bible reading goals, you're going to have to look at your whole life and say, are there some things I can move around and change? One of the things I most challenge husbands to do is have some time where you take care of the kids that your wife can seek the Lord and provide a place to go do that. Even if uh, a lot of times my place was, I actually bought one of those plastic things that back in the day you used to put on a treadmill so you could put your book on it. And I would keep that in my car and I'd pull up to the YMCA every morning after letting my kids off to school at seven o'clock to 7.15 I would drive to the Y, I'd get my plastic thing out, put it over the wheel. Never used it while I was driving. But uh, then I'd put my New American Standard Bible in there. And the next thing I know, it was 10 o'clock. And I had just read the word two or three hours, and I'd better uh, get, uh, get in there and just get my workout going because I'm uh, 
the only reason I'm getting away with this is I own the company and I can start work whatever time I want. But uh, that was back when we ran our business. And um, so you got to have a place. And you got to have a place where no one can bother you. Where you don't have a cell phone. If your cell phone's on when you're trying to read the word, that's a waste. I don't think you have to smash it. Just turn it off. You know what? I hope you all know that we have lots of leaders in our church because there are certain times where my phone is set to not answer it. And, and that, that doesn't ha- happen. If, if I'm watching an Ohio State game on Saturday and you call, I always say, well, it's a good thing Leah called. I can't wait to talk to her at church tomorrow, see what she wanted. <laughs> Don't call during football. Or quiet times, or whatever. Don't call before noon because I'm reading. Fifthly, make sure you have measurable success. I used to be the sales trainer for Fifth Third Bank Equipment Leasing. And so I trained a lot of successful salesmen whose ability to provide for their wife and kids was based on how well I helped train them. And in fact, one of the most easy things that the guy who trained me taught me, he said, we have all kind of salesmen who come in. The ones who do it the way we teach them always succeed. The ones who have better ideas and better ways, they never succeed. And I never found one uh, that violated that principle. It's, it's really kind of interesting when you, when you spiritually mentor and disciple people the ones who kind of keep things to themselves and don't open up and, and, do, and do it their way, they usually don't do very well. They usually have all kinds of spiritual problems. The ones who are humble and teachable and so forth, they usually succeed. Make sure your goals are measurable, and they're measurable in the biblical units of time that God gave us in Genesis chapter 1 and that carry through through the whole Bible. Namely, days, weeks, moons, months, and years. So make sure there's an annual review of your goals and set a time of the year that you do that. Because on my birthday is December 2nd, and between Thanksgiving to January 1st is normally give or take because Thanksgiving's a little floating, but it's normally about 40 days, and 40 days is a nice biblical season. I set my goals for the year during that 40 days every year. And every year, I seek God for a scripture for that year. The most common scripture the Lord has ever given me is Matthew 6, over and over again. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all things will be added to you. And so you have to kind of look at, let me step back and at everything in my life and see if it really is about seeking first. Because we are idol worshipers. That's part of our fallen condition. Paul tells the Thessalonians that they turned from their idols to serve a living and true God. We can make an idol out of anything. We're really good at it. It came naturally with our fallen nature. Most people are good at idol making like they are blame shifting and excuse making and rationalizing. Usually by the time they're two. 
Anyone who's raised kids know that they're great blame shifters uh, and so forth by age two. Little weasels. Um, so, <laughs> uh, and, and you don't have to be discipled in it. Usually you're a pretty good excuse maker without anybody helping you. Adam and Eve got it, did very well on excuse making with their first talk with God after their fall. They blame shifted and excuse make, and they were quite expert at it already. So, 1 Corinthians 9, 24 and 25. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Only one. Run in such a way that you may win. Anyone who competes in the games has to exercise self-control. You have to look at every area of your goals. Like, let's say we're talking about our finances. That involves all kinds of things in your life. What kind of job or vocation do I have? Do I have a plan to get to a better place job and vocation-wise and education-wise and so forth? Do I, do I know how to budget? Do I know how to live in what's called the affordability principle? Guess what? If you have to put it on a credit card and you don't have cash, God doesn't want you to have it. You don't have to seek him about it. The Bible clearly says to, to love, owe no man anything except to love one another. The only kind of debt that God allows in the scripture is short-term investment debts. A house can sometimes be a good investment, but they're not the investment they once were, and, uh, or historically up until the 1950s or so, on, or probably 1970s or 80s, I mean, whatever. Uh, you know, so you can't, um, you can't deceive yourself about stuff like that. If you have to put it on a credit card, I, my wife and I use credit cards, and people laugh at this, but my one little card says 1 to 15 in a little yellow Post-it note taped to my card, and the other one says 16 to 31. And that's because we always pay 100% of the credit card every month, but we pay it 45 days after we buy the gas or whatever, and it gives us an automatic record. And it's a cash flow man management tool because we're paying for everything 45 days after we bought it. But we never not don't pay 100% of the balance. So things like biblical finances, don't lie to yourself. Your goals have to be measurable. If they're measurable, they should be accountable. For instance, you should be able to talk to your spouse about these goals. Secondly, uh, you should be able to talk to uh, a pastor or an, or a good friend that in the church that that has uh, spiritual insights. Don't get advice, as the scripture makes clear in Psalm one and many other places. Don't get advice from ungodly people. So many people do what their mom wants them to do, or their or some other relationship. That let's let's let me just tell you something. If somebody is spiritually wise and mature a local church will be saying that about them. And the eldership of the local church will be saying that about them. And, and it'll be a local church that they belong to and, and everyone knows them. That's one of the advantages of community. You know, no one doesn't, I'm sure everyone in our church knows I spend way too much money on ties because I like ties. 
It's the only reason I wear a tie on Sundays because I'm looking for somewhere I get to wear a tie. Even though we don't really dress up as a church, but I like to. Um, when you're setting your goals, take into account your other biblical responsibilities. You can't like not spend time with your kids because you're gonna, you know, gonna finish the book of Job this week. <laughs> Right? So you got to take into account all your responsibilities. I appreciate, uh, hey, uh, who, who can I rely on? Nathan, just continue, or Tiffany, one of you continue to work with those downstairs. This is, I want to make sure that we have this. this we, we can't go anywhere in Grace Christian Fellowship. I'm actually going to go on a period or season of not teaching for a while so I can write more and things. So this is the last thing, I'm, and I, I, I wanted to teach this before I left. If you don't have goals in life in three to five key areas, your life will be aimless and void. So believe me, this is worth going over. Because if you don't do these other things, like make them challenging but but not unrealistic, you will basically waste your time as a Christian. And the one life God's given you, you don't get a second one. So sixth point here is periodic reevaluation of goals and biblical units of time. We already so at the end of the day, did I read my daily scriptures today? At the end of the week, my uh, all my goals are always based on being faithful five days of the week because I think that's more realistic than being faithful seven. Almost all Bible plans are based on reading a certain amount on seven days of the week. Mine are always based on reading a certain amount five days of the week. And Saturday, or whatever, like if you have every Wednesday off, so that would be your Saturday, that should be your makeup day. And then I have other things in my life that I, I occasionally have to travel for business or ministry. And so I always make the, the trip a time to catch up on reading. So I'm always reading while waiting for the plane. I always read on the plane. And, uh, and I always read in the hotel while I'm gone. And I sometimes will catch up two months worth of reading on one little trip. It, you have to, when you have periodic reevaluation of your goals, factor into the goals in a schedule your makeup times already. Don't be unrealistic about who you are. I'm not setting a goal to get up and seek God before the sun comes up every day <laughs> because that's not who I am. The Bible says the Lord neither slumbers or sleeps, but I couldn't prove that at 5 a.m. That's usually when I'm done reading and going to bed. And I don't take a lot of appointments before noon to 2 o'clock because when I'm up in the mornings, I read and work out and those kind of things. So factor in... Uh, for temporary disruptions or failures. Factor in makeup time. I'm so glad we have three bathrooms very intentionally, one bathroom on each floor, because uh, the toilet on the top floor broke the day or two before Christmas. And uh, so now it's, you know, like we just have to go down to another floor to use the bathroom and come back up again. But we're not living, you know, where we have to go to an outhouse because if we did, my wife would kill me. And 
I would no longer be the pastor because I'd be dead. <laughs> Once we actually rented a cabin that, didn't, that had an outhouse, and uh, I think the, my wife is still working. She needs probably another so-so to get <laughs> to forgive me completely. But uh, <laughs> she, hasn't, she, she didn't get over that one very easily. We're, we're not exactly camp out kind of people. My, I, I think going to a nice hotel is roughing it because you, you don't have everything in the place you've worked years on getting it organized. I don't like to travel. All right, so... Spend some time learning about how to goal set and spending time goal setting and reevaluating goals is, a, is very much time worth spending. I was very successful in sales in, in my years of not being a pastor. In between church plants, I worked in sales for a dozen years or more. And it took me about a year to become the number three guy in the company, and it took me five years to become the number two guy, and I never caught the number one guy. But uh, I made a lot of money, and that's not evil. The love of, the mon- of money is the root of all evil, and the Greek means, actually means the love of money is the root of all sorts of manure, or it's actually a stronger word for that. Uh, it's the love of money is a is a terrible thing, but money is a necessary thing to do God's will. The reason the Bible says, "Oh, no man, anything except to love one another." If you have too much debt, you can't give to anybody. Golda helped me with my Christmas shopping this year, and as always, I shopped on New Year's Eve, or I mean Christmas Eve. That is not New Year's. <laughs> And I always do all my shopping on Christmas Eve afternoon and try to be in time. I was actually a couple minutes late for the, for the whatever you call it, Christmas Eve service, so I had to go back and watch uh, Michael's reading, uh, I think was the only thing I missed on, on video, which he did a great job, and I watched it last night. Uh, but I, you know, I like that I was in a place where I can go out and spend $1,000 in less than an hour, and I'm good. <laughs> It's okay. I pre-planned for that. <laughs> and the money was set aside a long time ago. Um, so here's some things on number seven that I'm going to go on to reading Bible programs. But this applies to all, what we said so far applies to all goals. And again, don't have goals in 12 different areas that you'll just be confused. And don't have goals that you're factoring in your guilt or your shame or your uh, insecurities. Don't let all, you got to step aside. Like they often, we, we say this all the time in counseling. The first thing we've got to achieve if we're going to disciple somebody is to get them past the voices in their head. If there's a lot of like hurt, damage, insecurities, a crappy dad and all of that. You, every, every person you work with, you should first at, find out what kind of marriage their parents have. Because more than whether you're a good dad or, or, or a good mom, the, what affects your kids most spiritually is the quality of your marriage. That actually will overcome not being that great of a dad or a mom. Or, or, the, or it'll create permanent damage issues that are that can be worked through, that's what redemption in Christ is all about. And, um, but then find out what kind of relationship they had with each parent. 
but especially their father. Now, I wouldn't say that fatherhood or motherhood is more, more important than the other. We just live in a time where we're doing a very bad job growing up men. Most men in our culture are just people who think I'm a man because I have more expensive toys than when I was a boy. And that's how most men operate and think in our culture. So I have cooler guns and cooler cars and cooler CDs and stereo equipment and, you know, better, better basketball than I used to have, you know, <laughs> and so forth. That's not what being a grown-up is, but that's what, you know, we, we have a real problem with men in our culture. We, most men in our culture are really in trouble. And it's okay, like we found that it often takes three to seven years to rescue someone. And the guys who stay in one place and get mentored and discipled in Christian community do well. And if they hop around from here to here, they'd never do well. We've seen it a million times. The book that we use called um, When the Church Was a Family by Joseph Hellerman is a great argument for staying in one Christian community that ha it has to be a healthy community that has real spiritual authority that's based on scripture and that gives personal mentoring and discipling and you'll never get whole apart from all the ingredients of grace that we talk about the delivery systems of grace. When you're uh, factoring for temporary disruptions in makeup time, bend, don't break. One thing I love about sports is I love watching a situation where you know, a team gets down by a certain amount or whatever, but, but they, they don't panic, and then they kind of, you know, regroup and come back and win the game. You have to learn to get a situation where you, your goals get interrupted, everything goes a mess, and you just, and you, you reevaluate them, and you re-up your plan. Well, oh, I didn't, I didn't, uh, plan when I was, you know, think, thinking about dieting that, uh, you know, John Gray's going to call me every Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday and ask me if I want to go eat a half pound, a half gallon of ice cream with him. <laughs> I, if I'm going to have a good diet, I got to factor that in. And I might have to refactor that in after at a certain point. Stay the course and avoid a pattern of quitting in your life. There was a time in my first 30 years or so of being a Christian that I finished every book I started. Why? Because the number one thing my oldest brother always taught me was I, had, I was always supposedly did well on IQ tests and I should be a talented athlete and I should do well in school and I never did well in anything. And partly before I was a Christian, I didn't do well in anything because I was a quitter. Every goal will have some tough parts that you're going to have to bend, not break, stay the course, and work through some obstacles to get it, or you're never going to get any goals in life. You know, when I was first pursuing Catherine, you know, I called her up, asked her for a date. She said, I'm busy. And I said, what are you busy with? I'm washing my hair. Well, how about Saturday night? I'm drying it. You know, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, I'm just, that's just an old joke. But uh, there's some obstacles to get through. 
don't be a quitter. That's why I think it's a, a great advantage to consider a five-day-a-week plan and have whatever is your sort of not normal scheduled day. The Lord's Day, I don't have Bible reading goals on the Lord's Day. My goal is to quit being so late for the 8.30 prayer meeting. Yep, I'll, I'll get to that. So, um, does everybody understand what I'm saying? Okay. There's some advantages to making your goals five days a week and, and then using whatever's your not normal schedule day. That should be part of that goal for that day should be your makeup. We really do work, by the way, in this culture, people think, oh, the biblical week is to work six days. And we work five days in our culture. But actually, it's much more biblical system than you think because they were in an agrarian culture where taking, painting the house, cleaning the bathroom, uh, you know, getting the shots for the dog, taking the kids to the dentist. They probably didn't have those in Israel. But who knows what they had. You know, that's what you do on the sixth day. And that's part of the work. In an agrarian society, everything is your business. You know, a lot of you know that I finance a lot, a lot of Amish and Mennonite-type uh, people, uh, cultures and, and churches and so forth, and Huterites and German Baptists and so forth. And they, they are uh, a big part of our customer base and our business. And uh, so they... Almost every Amish guy, the reason they can't get bank, bank financing is because you say, well, what kind of business do you have? They go, well, I don't have a business. I'm just Levi Byler. And I said, well, do you, do you sell any produce? Do you have a produce stand? Oh, of course. You, do, you sell chi- do you sell eggs? It, of course. We, we have chickens. We sell how many egg do- dozen eggs do you sell a week? Oh, you know, like 30 or so. Or, you know. And the more you start questioning, the more that you realize they just think of themselves as a household in the old-fashioned biblical sense, oikonomia. Uh, you, uh, they don't think of themselves as a business, but they're really running like 20 businesses out of, that, out of their little farm. So, uh, and then I always find out if they make jellies with no sugar uh, out of fruit juices, because then I'm going... And do they make good pies? If they make good pies, then I'm turning that into a personal visitation call. <laughs> I'm, I'm coming to see your business <laughs> and your pies. So, um, all right, now let's, let's zero in on the Bible. I don't want everyone to have our Bible reading program, but I want everyone to have a Bible reading program. You're not taking seriously what the scriptures say about scripture if you don't. You don't just open up haphazard, you know, a little bit here and there, and you open your Bible, and, you know, it says, though it tarry, wait for it, for truth surely come. That, that was a bad one when I was seeking an answer to why the, you know, Germans were bombing London. No, I'm just, no you know, you don't just do that. You, you have to have a regular program where you're reading all scripture. So at the bottom of your outline is a resource that the English Standard Version of the Bible publishes that has about seven Bible reading programs, including McShane and some of the ones that Andy Gearhart and John Weiss and people like. Uh, But there's other ones. 
Many of you, in one of our years for our Appreciation Sunday, we gave out 30 or to 40 copies of the Reformation Study Bible. It has a Bible program in the beginning of it. Choose a Bible program before January 1st. I like to choose it by December 2nd, my birthday or so, and cheat ahead a little bit for the next year. Get some momentum. Okay, but get a Bible program. It doesn't have to be a Bible in a year program. But it should take into account reading the whole Bible in some regular interval of time. Uh, Personally, what I usually try to do, and a lot of times I've changed my Bible programs, I keep uh, my old red New American Standard Bible right here so I can show people my detailed notes in the table of contents and so forth about how I did my Bible program from 1998 to 2004. And you can see if you follow the little uh, tally marks, marks, thank you. Um, You can see that right where in 2004 I started reading an internet Bible more because the internet was becoming more popular. And uh, and I switched to reading electronic Bibles at that point. And the tally stopped right in the middle of the year 2004. But that was a bite, like every five to seven years I get a new Bible and, and have sort of new goals for what I want to do. Like I, originally I had my 10 color-coded Bible and so forth. Each, each underline meant a different uh, theme. You know, ha- have some way you're working your Bible. Uh, flip over, comprehensive sectional plan. I like to, now, sometimes... There's a reason I favor using different Bible plans because sometimes in your Bible, you should uh, take into account that the books were not written so you just turn to Matthew 13 to read seven parables of the kingdom of God or something. Matthew was written as one book with one theme, and if you study it enough times, you'll see that it's way beyond what evangelicals say that it was written to Israel to, uh, to help the Jews see that they had missed the coming of their Messiah. That's the common evangelical idea. But it is written to Israel, and it's written as a covenant lawsuit against Israel to see that God was taking the kingdom away from them and giving it to a nation that produced the fruit of, which he does in the church all the time. He has always taken... The reason the liberal churches... Are, have fallen apart in terms of finances and attendance is because God is always taking the kingdom away from the churches that don't produce the fruit of it. Believe me, when you read your Bible, you're serving Michael Hoff and David Furlow and Alyssa Ferguson. Because God deals with us as one people. So I, I um, think sometimes you should just start in Matthew 1 and read to the end of Revelation. At the same time, start in Genesis 1 and read to the end of Malachi. Catherine's Bible reading plan that she does over and over, she starts in Genesis 1. When she gets to the end of Revelation, she goes back to Genesis 1. And sometimes she takes six months to get through it, sometimes a year and a half, but it's always in that sort of time range. 
And uh, it depends on how many other books because Catherine is always reading at night when we're getting ready to go to bed. Now, as we've gotten older and so forth, that it's not as much as at one time. I learned to fall asleep with the lights on. If Catherine's still reading, it's okay. <laughs> you know, because I read these little books like this and she reads these books like this. So, I have never read a 700-page commentary on the book of Daniel. If you need that, ask Catherine. So, the, the Pentateuch, the other historical books, the wisdom books, the, the prophets, uh, the New Testament. You can also divide the New Testament into... Uh, so, those sections are listed under point C, 1, five biblical sections. Pentateuch, Old Testament, wisdom, prophets. The New Testament is exactly 260 chapters, and that's exactly 52 times 5. So if you plan to read one chapter a day, five days a week, you'll read the New Testament once a year. If you read two chapters a day, five days a week, you'll read the New Testament twice a year. And I recommend that you have one of those two goals, to either read the New Testament every year because one of the things that's so hard for us as Americans, and, I, and I, you know, I don't care that we're over time. This is very, if you get this stuff, it'll change your life. If this is just another message that you don't go home with your notes and do something about, then you shouldn't have even bothered to come today. But if you go home and make this part of your lifestyle, you will be a very different kind of Christian uh, in one year, but in five years, you'll really start seeing we are very oriented towards sprints in our culture, but the Christian life is a marathon. Now, we have a few people in our church, like me and my wife, who are over 40, but not very many. Thank God for Dave Gress and Stephen's mother Smith, you know, visiting today. Occasionally, we have someone who's over 30 and, and over 40, but not that often. So Morgan Kempton has about 55 to 65 more years to walk with God before she runs out of time. Robbie Johnson has 55 to 65 years to go. So if he spends five years being very diligent to lay a different kind of foundation in his life, that will affect the trajectory of his life for all eternity, but especially for the outcomes of this life which as far as I can tell from my understanding of the Bible, impacts the next life. This is a do or die thing we're talking about today. It's a do or die thing. Nothing is more important than you've ever thought about. You cannot obtain any type of relationship with anyone if you don't talk to them. And if you talk one way, which is what most prayer is, Bible reading is, is the other part of, it's a type of prayer whereby we listen. And it's the most important part of prayer. He already knows everything we need. He's told us that in Matthew chapter 6. We don't, uh, you know, need to give him our list of needs. We need to hear what he has to say. And that is totally crazy and off base if it's not rooted in a knowledge of all scripture. 
Now, I'm just going to cover plan four. But all of these are, you know, plan one is a very aggressive plan. My friend, and, and I, I have two pastor guys that I look to. One is Ned Berube. He calls me all the time to, to discuss how Sydney's doing. Because he met Sydney when Sydney first came to Christ in 2004. And he says, I have never seen a church that, that disciples as effectively as Grace Christian Fellowship in all the years that and he oversees over 100 churches. And he said, I've never seen, and, but some of that I always say is because we had this Bible calendar. Can you hold that up a second? And that this has been distributed in their bulletin or what? Or no, we have them in the back on the foyer way. Uh, maybe we should get aggressive at the end about passing them out. I, I would like to, Stephen, if you could get a, get a little team of two or three guys and, you know, pass them out. But if you use our program, it's designed to have choices. If you do three of the six, every day there's six chapters listed on the calendar. We're going to provide this all year. If you read the top three, it's designed to get you through the New Testament every year and the Old Testament every two years. That's what plan four is, and that's what I consider the plan that most people should have. Because uh, now, Sidney chose, when we first met him, to do the sixth chapter of plan, and we used to give out that calendar, remember? So we had the scriptures a little tighter up in the corner or whatever, but it was the exact same plan. And uh, Sydney did the six chapter a day program. Now, that has a lot to do with why, when I go over to dinner at Sydney's house and he asked me to stay for devotions, I'm so amazed and impressed about what a wonderful marriage and the spirit of God being in his apartment and in his relationship with Melody and her love for God and her love for Sydney and Sydney's love for God. And it's, it's all wonderful. And, it, and some of that's because Sydney followed the six chapter a day program for the first how many years? Maybe seven or so years you were in the church or something. And if you do that five or seven years, it'll change your destiny in everything. And it has a lot to do with why Sydney has three associates degree, a bachelor's degree, owns a home, uh, has a great marriage, and so, and so and so forth and so forth. So plan four is designed to get through the New Testament once a year and the Old Testament half of it every year. And it's designed to read the New Testament five chapters a week and to read two chapters from the, from the four sections. So I always put the section of, the, of Moses and the Pentateuch, Genesis through Deuteronomy, with the wisdom literature. So both of those are five books. Then the other historical books, which are 12, and the prophets, which are 12 and 5, I put those in the other year. And that's because the prophets are prophesying during the time of Israel's all its kings. And I always take time when I'm reading a prophet, when it says that he prophesied in the days of Hezekiah or what have you, I always take time to look up the you know, ESV study notes or lots of, there's lots of tools where you can kind of see, oh, he prophesied during these chapters of the Old Testament. And so that's why I always do the prophets at the same time as what, you, what I call the other historical books. Most 
Bible plans call them the historical books, but that misses the fact that Genesis through Deuteronomy are, are both law, law, gospel, and historical, and so forth. But, they are very, but they're very historically accurate. Does everybody get this? And now, because all Scripture is inspired by God, what, uh, sometimes it's just better if you just read, start in Matthew and read a whole book and think about Matthew as one book. Mark is another book. We've talked about that. But I also like to do this plan sometimes, and I switch plans every five to seven years or so, because this plan, I see the interconnectedness of all Scripture. And I always do my own cross-reference Bible. I'm, you know, I make one up in the margins as I'm reading. So when I read this verse, I go, oh, that makes me think of when Moses talked about that in Deuteronomy and when Solomon talked about that in the Proverbs and when Isaiah talked about it. And so I'll look up some of these other scriptures and make my own little cross-reference Bible. There's a Bible that I keep right there for people to study how I go about it because I, like Paul said, if the things you've learned and seen in me, this is a bold statement, but I would actually not make this on the level of Paul, but I would make this. If the things, Timothy, that you've learned and seen and observed in me, if you practice these things, the God of peace will dwell with you. He'll dwell in your marriage. He'll dwell in your house. I, I am never surprised or amazed when people go, when I walk in the house, I, I sense the Spirit of God. Uh, we had the pleasure of, Catherine and I were invited over to the Hager's house for dinner a week or two back, about two weeks ago, and we got to sit in on their devotions after dinner with the Advent wreath and, and so forth, and wow, it was like I've arrived and gone to heaven. It was, they did, they, the Spirit of God was so in their kids and and, and it was just amazing, wonderful. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Christina doesn't like my messages that much. You're, you know, you have a lot of people who feel the same way. All right. Now, I would just say this. Plan four, I have it in red, recommended for married couples with children. Now, I say that to say this, John Luke, Sam Moante, Robbie Johnson. You will never, Abigail, have as much time to study God's word and grow in God's word as you do before your first child is born. Never again will you have that opportunity ever. Ever in this life. Right, John? (laughs) I was looking at John Leopold. John Gray, too. Both Johns are good, right? There's a, there's a few distractions once two or three kids arrive. Just a few thousand. And any, anyone who has taken biblical parenthood seriously knows that raising two children is somewhere like four to nine times harder than raising one. But raising three children is somewhere like 16 to 25 times harder than raising one. And raising four children just downright takes miracles. (laughs) And when you factor in a special needs child or whatever, John Leopold, I hope he doesn't mind my picking on him, he would be, if he were to study scripture as much as some of you are called to, he'd be outside the will of God. 
because the demands of being a good husband and a good father and having a special needs child uh, does, don't allow him to have as much time to read scripture as some of you single guys and gals. And don't ever re- remember, there are some things that if you let them get away from you, they get away from you permanently. What you do with your scripture allocation now will affect eternal things and practical things every day of your life. It'll affect your retirement. So in the final evaluation, pray, evaluate, choose and work a plan for 2021. Again, on the front side at the bottom is a resource that the English Standard Version Bible puts out of Bible plans. Lots of people like McShane, for instance. On the back is my crazy plan. But my plan is based on five days a week. And uh, if you follow that five to seven years, your, the destiny of about 25 areas of your life will be impacted beyond what you can imagine. Sometimes when you do stuff, you just have to understand God's word promises. You can't see when you do a fast what, what the impact is, but God's word makes it clear what it is. So if you fast and if you do it regularly for the right attitudes and motivation, you will see results that every once in a while, God will take back the curtain a little bit and you'll go, wow, that was because I fasted, you know, back in 2004 or something. I remember realizing in the 1990s that a lot of the success of the first three churches we planted was due to the fact that Catherine and I had done some seven to 10 day fast together. After Catherine did that twice, she said, <laughs> never again. But, but, but I realized it was because of that that we had certain results. And you know, I, I, I know it's late, I know I've gone a long time. I know I cannot deliver my soul I don't know how to beg you to make this happen. Like step back from your whole life, figure out the interruptions, figure out the plan that you need to have, what you need to put aside. Do you need to unplug the phone? Where, where, where do you need to, to do this? Uh, so you won't be interrupted. But I beg of you, to get founded in the scriptures and the foundational books. Don't let it be said that you've been in this church for 12 months and you haven't read the 12 foundational books yet. That's absurdity. They're all designed to be read by fifth graders. That's why we chose them to be easy books. Now, the other list that we're expanding to books on 15 other topics I'm okay with, if you're working on that the rest of your life, that's what it's designed for. Does everybody get me? I, please, if you're mad at me for going so long, get over it. Because this is, we might as well sell the building. We might as well quit meeting. We might as well not have Christmas Eve services as delightful as that was. God has called us to be a people of the book. 
on a level that we have not attained to yet. It doesn't mean he loves us any less. It doesn't mean that you're called any less. He's not mad at you. He's just inviting you like when you're, when you're courting and you're, uh, you know, you, you write a, a letter. You know, I, I've had the privilege of knowing some couples and working with them when the husband was in an Afghanistan or something of this, these kinds of natures. Believe me, you've got to read the letters he's writing. To not read God's word is to snub him. And believe me, Love and indifference are much further apart than love and hate. Usually a lot of animosity and hate in a relationship is because there's also attraction in love and they just need some spiritual breakthroughs to, to get rid of certain spiritual things that are you know, tormenting them or whatever. But love and indifference, that's almost impossible to overcome. You, the only thing you can do is pray that God will light a fire under that guy's toes. And, uh, you know, and, and I pray with all my heart, I, I pray God would light a fire under us. Because this, this is why we're doing this. If we don't do this, we, then we should just quit coming. We have got to be a people that knows the word. And you've got to see yourself, even if you're not in an official leadership position or something, you've got to see yourself as called to that. God could give us 3,000 more people to disciple if we had the abilities. And apart from this, you won't have the abilities. There's guys that are called to leadership that this is what stands between them and getting there. There's lots of men and women in our church that have that calling. And because they have the hop around, lead a little, read a little here, read a little there, dabble at scripture, take Jesus as just part of my little life. If you have that approach, you might as well have the Lord take you home. You know, we could go back to the altar call version of Christianity and after you'd come forward, we'll just shoot you. So then no one will ever backslide. Uh, you know, or no one would, but you, we, we have got to be radical disciples of Jesus. There's no other choice. And there's no way to be his radical disciple. If you abide in my word and my word abides in you, then you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. I'm looking at uh, some people here that I can see they're so much more free than they were when we started together. You know, when John Gray gave his last message, it was in a league by itself as his best message ever because he saw certain things about biblical imagery in the last few months that had been, that he had eluded him up till then. And as he saw them, all of scripture became more clear to him. And, it, it, and you can hear it in what he shares. I, I was marveling at how accurate and clear and true this was because one hermeneutical principle of biblical imagery has become more clear to him and it changed his whole life and this is what I want for you this is what I, I want for you I, it's like when you're a parent and you want your kids to do well in school and you know every parent wants their kids to grow up to play the piano play the violin 
be the captain of the basketball team, uh, be the star quarterback in football, graduate with honors, and, uh, and have a great job and, and uh, take care of you in your retirement. This is what I want for you. I, I want the riches of God's word to permeate all of our lives. Amen. <laughs>